Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. And welcome to the show. If you even know the term dissociative identity disorder, you chances are, anyway, you probably you know it through movies. Uh, you know it through, there's a movie out right now called Split uh, that at least purports to depict dissociative identity disorder. But here's the other thing. You actually probably know somebody with dissoci- dissociative identity disorder. At least some of the st- statistics support the idea that you probably know somebody. I can tell you that in getting ready for this show, and just mentioning it to people that I know, I found out I know somebody with dissociative identity disorder, and I know that person pretty well. Uh, she had never mentioned that diagnosis to me, but when I started talking about this, she started talking too, and told me things that I hadn't realized over the decades uh, of our friendship. So yeah, chances are maybe you know somebody who actually uh, experiences this phenomenon on a daily basis. They don't experience it the way it's shown in 90% of the movies that show it at all. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about today, but we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Uh, And joining me in studio is Lee Waters, a healthcare worker for 25 years, a parent, and an aspiring writer working on an autobiography about dissociative identity disorder, which we're going to start calling DID pretty soon because it's just hard for me to say dissociative. Uh, And uh, working title, Real. Trauma, Truth, and Triumph. Lee Waters is a pseudonym. She's here in the studio with me. Joining us from the studios of Towson University uh, is Bethany Brand, professor of psychology at Towson and a practicing clinical psychologist specializing in trauma and dissociative disorders. So, Bethany, I'm going to start with you. Give us some kind of working thumbnail definition uh, of DID. So most people know it by the old name, which was multiple personality disorder, It's a disorder that affects uh, roughly about 1% of the general population. And exactly like you said uh, with your friend, most people have no idea when they know somebody who has the disorder because the disorder is not at all like it's portrayed in the movies. So rather than flamboyantly looking like somebody speaking French one moment and, you know, a little kid under a table sucking their thumb, they may look moody and they may seem to have you know, kind of perplexing gaps in their knowledge. They may not remember conversations that they've had with you or a a mood shift when they did something that's a little uncharacteristic. But that's, it's mostly a hidden disorder. People aren't out there flamboyantly trying to let other people know all about their disorder. Um, Most people, meaning 95% or more of people diagnosed with DID, actually are ashamed of the disorder, feel horrified by it, and the childhood abuse that led to it, and so they hide it. Um, Is it possible that everybody has, or or that many people on a more kind of normative basis have something like this? I mean, look, I I don't mean to seem glib about this, but I mean, I'm sure the producers of this show would say, oh, well, that's happy Colin. He came in here today. Uh, (laughs) He wasn't happy Colin yesterday. He was serious Colin. And I mean, we all have different manifestations of of ourselves. We also all, I think, have moments where we pull back psychologically. We, We feel threatened. We feel uncomfortable. 
we feel excruciatingly embarrassed and we kind of maybe have a sort of out of body moment. I mean, is this something, is this a continuum? I guess that's what I'm asking. That is one way of looking at it. So you're exactly right. We all do have shifts in our mood states. And along with that, with roles. Like right now, you're not going to get me no matter what you say. (laughs) I'm not going to talk to you like I would if I was playing with a preschooler or my cat. But the differences between our mood states for people who don't have DID is that we typically remember what we've said and done in the different states. And we can also consciously choose to shift states. You know, I got more serious coming into the radio station just because that's what this role pulls for Mm. versus playing, you know, with my kids, for example. So... I have conscious control over that and memory for what I do in different states. Somebody with DID, by definition of the diagnostic manual for uh, the mental health field, by definition, they have amnesia for some of what they do in their different states. Leah, I want to add you to this conversation. Actually, uh, as I add you, I'm going to have you define a few terms that I know will come up. And there are terms that pe- people don't necessarily know. But if they're, you're part of the DID community, you do. So one of those terms is alter. What's an alter? So for me, an alter is, as I came to find out um, more about what was going on with me, is just another distinct personality with their own role in um, what I've found to be something that that ultimately has made me whole as I've become more aware of them and uh, more co-conscious with what each of their roles is and how they helped me survive the trauma that I went through when I was a child. I was going to ask you, the next term I was going to ask you about was co-conscious because you, we had a chance to talk for about 20 minutes before we went on the air as a term that you used. So when you say co-conscious, you mean what? Well, co-conscious for me is what I've, through, through my therapy, is where I've come to be right now. So there was certainly a period of time where I was losing time or having that uh, amnesia that you spoke about where I just didn't understand the root of where that was coming from. So I attributed some of it to um, making poor decisions in terms of uh, drinking too much or being overly stressed. Or and, and there were certainly times where I had no explanation for it whatsoever. And, you know, that's a scary thing. You know, you lose time. You don't know where you've been or, or what's been happening. And, you know, I would find that certainly when this was coming to a head with me that I would be having, you know, a flurry of text messages um, from the person that I had been with saying, you know, what was that? Mm-hmm. You know, that is – you've never spoken to me that way. You've never behaved that way. Um, and so that began the process of starting to dig down a little bit deeper to find out, you know, why that was happening to me, what the catalyst was, and um, what I could do to to try to figure it out a little bit more, and um, you know, get some healing and some health. I'm going to come back to you about the def- definition of another term, but uh, Bethany, I want to uh, <clears throat> ask you: uh, uh, when we see this in the movies, when we see it on television, it's almost never in the co-conscious version that Lee just talked about. It's always, uh, you know. Uh, Mildred comes out, and then Mildred's there, and 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 whoever was there before Mildred doesn't know that Mildred's out. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, is there a way to talk about which thing is more common? Is it more often the case that ultimately people, as Lee has done, begins to sort of be aware of the alters and aware of what they're doing and be kind of conscious with them? Or or are people with this with DID more likely not to be kind of the way that Lee describes herself earlier in the process, not quite understanding what happened? 
The way Lee described it is typically how people come into therapy. Um, they they have these inexplicable changes in behavior that they they may not remember all of it or they remember part of it and they feel like they can't stop talking when they're, for example, being ruder than they would typically to a friend. And then through the course of therapy, they get to know what's happening when they have those amnestic gaps or losing time, uh, as Lee called it. So as a therapist, you help somebody try and piece together what they're doing and what part of them, you know, it's, it's a state. It's not a different person takes over. It's a, a mood state. There are neurobiological uh, explanations for DID. And so it's not something far-fetched like what the movies try and portray. Anyway, when they, when they shift these states, they need to learn about the states, just like Lee said, and learn their functions, how they help them survive, because it is a survival mechanism. When a child is exposed to unbearable trauma, usually before age uh, six or so, when it's unbearable, they can't escape it. Going away in their mind, in other words, dissociation, is how some people are able to survive it. And so in therapy, we're trying to help people learn about their different parts and how to collaborate and cooperate and not lose time so much over time. So she's obviously, you know, done a, a good bit of work in therapy. I should say her, her therapist is here in the studio with us. We don't anticipate her speaking, but she's uh, here uh, for support uh, and was talking to me beforehand. So uh, helping me understand uh, this stuff um, a, a little bit more. Not that Lee needs any help. She's very good at explaining stuff. So, um, Lee, I'm going to ask you uh, to explain another term that you used when we were talking. I've seen it a lot in the literature that, that uh, we looked at getting ready for the show. And that's the word hijack. Explain what hijack means. You know, there are certain terms that other people use. Mm -hmm. um, that's one that I use. And that happened to me um, one of the times that we really started to dig down a little bit deeper with this was um, I was in a relationship that was um, unhealthy. Um, I was with a man who was treating me badly. Um, it wasn't a physical abuse, but it was definitely an emotional abuse. And this, there was a, you know, the voice in my head that said, you know, this is not good for you. This is a bad situation. You shouldn't be in it. And, um, you know, you need to make better choices. And then there was a situation where um, it got explosive in a conversation about, you know, how he was treating me. And I got hijacked. And there was no attribution to um, over drinking or, um, you know, in any other way, a reason why, where I would black out. And um, some hours later, I woke up at my home. My dogs were circling me and panting, and I didn't know what had happened. And that's when I saw that, you know, flurry of texts where it was mm -hmm. like, you know, so what was that all about? Mm -hmm. And uh, then when I, I met with Hope, you know, we had a discussion about dissociation, which led me to start doing more research. I went to the Mayo Clinic website, and as I was looking at the description, I, I just literally was like, check. Check. I mean, it just all made sense to me. And simultaneously was a very scary thing to think about. Um, but as I learned more about it, I learned that it made sense in so much of my life mm -hmm. in that I, you know, always felt different as a child. I always felt like, you know, the other kids were going in from red light, green light, playing outside and dinner was called. And I was just thinking, whose house can I go to? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I just didn't want to go back to my house. And, but I didn't know, I didn't know why. I just knew I was different. And um, it was comforting in that it explained so many things about what I had been going through as a child and what I was feeling as a child. And at the same time, it was 
very scary to think that this dissociation was something that was much more ingrained than what we talk about, you know, where some, you know, somebody, your part of you in your mind is saying, you know, this is a dangerous, you know, situation. You should probably try to, you know, get out of it. So that was what hijacking was for me. First of all, I want to explain that uh, I said before uh, that um, Lee's psychotherapist or therapist is here in the studio. Her name is Hope Payson. So when she said, when I met with Hope, that wasn't one of her alters, or nor was it an expression about meeting with Hope uh, as an idea, but that's Hope who's here. I want to tie a little bow a little bit more on this. So I want to go back to hijack. So what you're really telling me, I think, is that in that particular instance that you just described, one of your alters ultimately kind of took the the rudder uh, of the boat or the stick of the plane and that's, flew it for a while, right? That's exactly what she was. She was driving the bus. Yeah. And uh, she was doing that to protect me because that was ultimately her, her job still to this day. You know, she is my warrior. She is the one that um, remembers uh, the trauma. Um, to this day, I don't remember the trauma. I know certain things. I know that I always knew that there was something. I couldn't put a finger to it, and I couldn't remember it. So that was what made it, you know, that what made me feel so different and, and yet not be able to understand uh, directly, well, this happened on this day, which is why, or this happened over many days or many years. Um, this is why this is happening to me. I don't get hijacked anymore because we are, I mean, in, I, I guess unless I was put in a situation where I was, again, you know, making a bad decision about somebody that I wanted to or I thought I wanted to be with, and that person was a predator, for lack of a better definition. And, you know, she would be patient in my head and say, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing this. You need to take care of yourself. And if I didn't heed that, then eventually it was going to come to a point where she was going to take care of the situation for me as a protector. And when you say she, and we talk about this altar, this is, I think, someone named Rebecca, right? Yes. Rebecca is uh, my protector, my warrior. She is the one that holds the memory of the trauma. And so as as much as I know that something happened, I don't, ha- I don't have to know what it was. Um, and I'm not sure that I ever will. You have a warrior and a worrier, right? Uh, Emily is your warrior. My warrior, yes. Um, I do have Emily. Um, She's a warrior. And I will say Rebecca is 14. Um, She has a very specific look. She looks different than I do. She has long black hair. She wears too much makeup. She likes to be barefoot. She has ripped jeans. I mean, she's she's in my mind. She's very specific a person. She does not age in, in my mind, although I know that there are people that do have alters that age. Mm-hmm. Um, she does not. Emily is, she's about eight years old. She is, she worries about everything. She mm-hmm. worries about, in particular, animals. I've always had dogs all my life. And, um, you know, if a dog is sick or that can make her have much more anxiety. In fact, I uh, recently um, had lost a dog and I still have another dog and I was trying to have the two dogs. We were trying to adopt another dog and I thought that the dog that I have now, whose name is Jasper, was not going to do, I worried that he wasn't going to do well in meeting another dog. So we did this in a, you know, in an environment that was, you know, kind of safe for the dogs. But the minute I saw them try to meet each other, I knew that Jasper was going to probably try to hurt this dog. And there was a cacophony in my head of, 
stop it, run, make the situation stop. So I and mean, that was, I and that was it. Emily. And that was really everybody, but yeah. it was overwhelmingly Emily. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and again, Emily has physical details that are also different from your physical details. She has a stutter. You've yep, never stuttered. She, she, she has, wears glasses. Yep, you don't wear glasses. Yep. She has a profound stutter, um, especially in instances of very high stress. She wears glasses. She is. She loves to read um, Nancy Drew books. She loves to pet the dog. She is. Um, she wants to make sure there's enough food in the refrigerator. She wants. To, she worries about all the things that make a house a home for us, and uh, she takes on a lot of that, you know. And certainly, when I'm saying this, like that's me too. Mm-hmm. But that is really her. Her role is the warrior. I want to go over to Bethany on this. Obviously, I'm guessing Bethany, as you're listening to all this, you're going, "Yep, yep, yep," and that you've heard <laughs> stories. Uh, like this uh, from so many different patients in so many different situations. But there are also people listening right now, Bethany, who are going, oh, come on now. You know, there is no Rebecca or Emily. And some of those people may actually be part of the clinical community, right? There are some people, even who are clinicians, who say, yeah, well, that's not really, that's not real. That's some way that people have of talking about something. Can you respond to that? Well, if somebody gets concrete, a clinician or otherwise, and misunderstands what Leah's saying and misinterprets it to mean that she has different people inside, then that's accurate. Nobody has different people inside. However, we all have different networks, memory systems in our brains. Um, and under threat, different parts of the brain light up, come on, whatever metaphor you want to use. When we're dissociating, there's research that show that certain parts of the brain start shutting down or being less active. There's a part of the brain called the insula that is aware of how we're feeling in our bodies. So my guess would be that Lee or certainly other people with DID, if they have a personality state that becomes active, that is very dissociated, very out of touch with how their body is feeling emotionally or physically, their insula is probably not very active. Versus if she has the warrior or, uh, you know, the warrior, the part that is aware of trauma, start to remember a trauma-based memory, different brain systems are going to start getting activated and lit up. And in that state, she may have less access to other memories. So it's not that she becomes different people. It's that her brain is shifting around. And she's like anybody else with DID. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. We're just learning now about the neurobiology. But there really are nar- neurobiological differences that help us understand this. It's not magic. She doesn't have different people any more than I have a Bethany brand running around inside of my brain. You know, how do you know, Colin, that you're you and not me and not Lee? How do you know? That's an interesting question. I mean, it's sort of the <laughs> – um, I, mean, I mean, it is one of those – questions that has sort of a circular answer. I just do. Right. But you do it based on your memory. Mm -hmm. Like you have an idea of who your friends are and what your life circumstances have been and, you know, what you look like when you look in the mirror. Lee probably, or uh, many people with DID, when they look in the mirror, sometimes they actually look to themselves to be different. And my guess is that she's got an astute therapist who can pick up on these these shifts in the way she talks or, or her behavioral kind of manifestations. But in fact, she doesn't become an entirely different person. Hollywood portrays movies like uh, like in Sybil. You know, at one point, you know, Sybil Sally Field is speaking with a very heavy French accent. 
Um, and then later on, you know, she's vastly different wearing a veil and she's a little girl. Obviously, people can't change their physical form that much, although eyesight can change. Mm. Response to medication can change. Things that have, you know, a real basis in neurobiology. But like the movie Split, I, I don't want to give away things for anybody who hasn't heard, seen it. But like this wild change in body, that can't really happen. We are going to talk a little bit about Split anyway, because I know that you did attempt to prevail uh, upon the director um, to to change some of the depictions there. Uh, but what we're going to do first is take a break. I, I, I Now I want to talk about all this stuff for three hours, which is not going to work. But let's take a break. Uh, we'll come back right after this. My narcissus kisses exhale crimson breath and put ruby to the lip. I stand before myself, not Jekyll, nor Hyde, not Sibylline, nor Twins separated at birth. I stand before myself. And we're back. This is so interesting. I mean, I really do want to talk about it for three hours now. I have so many questions for my guests, who are Lee Waters, a healthcare worker for 25 years, parent, uh, an aspiring writer working on an autobiography about her experiences with dissociative identity disorder, DID. Uh, also joining us from Towson University's studios is Bethany Brand, professor of psychology at Towson University, a practicing clinical psychologist specializing in trauma and dissociative disorders. If you're reading an article uh, or a scholarly piece uh, about DID. It's either by Bethany or it quotes her. At least that was our experience. You know, because of something that Bethany said in the previous segment, Lee, I want to ask you about something. So, because I think all of us are, we have a little bit of a struggle getting this, right? So now we know it's not like civil or something. On the other hand, there are these altars that you have, and they have names, and they have distinct qualities, features, physical identities that are different from one another. And on at least one occasion, I think Emily, the warrior, not the warrior, the warrior, did manage to talk to you or did wind up talking to your therapist, Hope, on the phone. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, she did. Um, I was in a situation fairly recently, a couple of years ago, where I'd made some poor choices in my life. I was struggling with the loss of my house. And in that period, Emily, who was the most worried about where are the dogs going to be, because that would be her, that's her wheelhouse. That was where she was, you know, the most worried. And I think, because I don't have a clear recollection of it, I probably called Hope. And then the minute I started talking about what's going on, what are we going to do? Are we going to if we lose the house, what will happen to the dogs? Then Emily hijacked me, and Hope came to learn that there was an, this other altar. And then at one point, I had come to her office, and um, Hope has a wonderful therapy dog, and the dog must have triggered in some way Emily in that whole dog worry thing, and that's when um, Hope was able to see her in a as not Lee, as not Rebecca, but as Emily. Mm -hmm. And certainly I have been co-conscious with her now, so which is really very fascinating because I almost look at it as if like um, if a globe on an axis were to be turning um, as, as I change over, as that co-consciousness happens and she starts to stutter and I got for uh, – this, this instance to be able to look at her and hear what she was saying, which was coming out of my mouth, but it was 
a profound stutter and the inability to see clearly because I don't have glasses. Mm-hmm. And as as I came back to being Lee once again, you know, it's kind of one of these, well, what what, what was that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is understandable. But as we became uh, more co-conscious with each other, now it is, for me, more of a team effort. So mm-hmm. when we went to look at that dog, when we went to have the dog meeting, the conversation in my head was, everything's going to be fine. Nobody's going to get hurt. The dogs are going to be okay. But, you know, in my mind, I could see Rebecca with her arms around Emily. Alice was my um, little, little girl, was sort of grasping onto Emily's leg. And again, I spoke of this cacophony of, you know, and me trying to sort of calm everyone down. Mm -hmm. And, And when it was over, I had to exit the building where this was happening because it was really too much for me and I thought too much for everyone else and just had to go home and like make hot cocoa and eat a grilled cheese sandwich and like just comfort the system so we could, you know, and talk about that dog's going to get a new home. Jasper's fine. We're all fine. Everybody's going to be okay. So it's really working as I call them my team. They are my team. I couldn't function without them, which sounds a little strange because overwhelmingly I do. Mm-hmm. But it is a when there are times of stress or other things where I feel like we need to have a discussion. For instance, on the way here, mm-hmm. it was everyone's going to be fine. It's a safe environment. Colin seems nice enough. <laughs> Been listening to him for years. You know, Hope's going to be here. It's all going to be good. So. That's where I've come in this journey to to be able for all of us to work together. I don't ever anticipate. I know sometimes when people talk about integration, it's like um, they all meld in some way, and mm-hmm. they're not. There's not this distinction. I see them all playing very important roles in who makes me who I am, and. And I, for the I, rest of your life, you're saying? For the rest yeah. of my life. I, so I, I just want to just, um, I don't want us to run out of time. Bethany, can we talk a little bit about treatment? I am assuming hope is a genius. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know. I just feel like I'm talking to a, a person I might be talking to on any given uh, day. So so how, how do you treat something like this? Is there an agreed upon method? Uh, there's an expert consensus guidelines that have been actually in effect for decades There's a professional group, and I think you're going to have the link on your website for this for anybody who's looking for help or a therapist who want to get training in working with people with dissociative reactions to trauma. On their website, they have free guidelines for how you treat adolescents, children, and adults. Basically, I'll I'll just say it in brief because it is a Mm long-term treatment. People typically, when they come in for treatment for a dissociative disorder, their disorder is not accurately diagnosed. There's a number of studies that have consistently found that typical patient is in the mental health system getting treatment, but the DID is not recognized for 6 to 12 years. So can you imagine 6 to 12 years getting treatment for something? For example, it's very often misdiagnosed as schizophrenia because, like Lee said, she hears voices. Well, so do more than 70% of the people with DID. So unfortunately, many, many clinicians have not been trained in trauma 
which when I say that to the layperson, they, they just shake their heads. Like, how can the mental health field not be getting training in trauma? Well, there's that's a long-winded answer, another hour talk. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, they often don't get diagnosed. But let's say that once somebody finally gets the diagnosis for DID, they don't just have DID. They typically also have post-traumatic stress disorder, a mood disorder, usually major depression, They may or may not have an eating disorder and a substance abuse disorder and a raft of other anxiety disorders and elements of disorders. So they come in very symptomatic, very complex. They're losing time. They have those amnestic gaps. And then most frequently, they're also engaging in some kind of risky behaviors, like Lee talked about, bad decisions or even self-harm and suicide attempts. It's very, very common for these uh, individuals to be self-attacking, basically, through self-harm, like cutting and burning, and multiple suicide attempts, more so than pretty much any patients in the mental health system on average. And so as a therapist, you hopefully make the accurate diagnosis, and then you work on stabilizing their safety. So teaching them how to get in control of their behavior, their shifting states, how to figure out why they're self-harming when that happens, when they're at risk for it, and safe ways to deal with the urges and the feelings that give rise to self-harm and suicide attempts. That's all stage one. That can take a very long time right there. Depends on the individual. Um, Stage two, if and when a person gets to that stage, because many people never actually get out of the stabilization phase, but if the person has the resources and wants to do the work, Um, Then they do the trauma processing, uh, and it's really not into that stage until you really start having the client tell you all the details of traumatic events. So one of the myths about DID therapy is that, and this is a myth, that therapists are like digging for trauma memories, and that's what they're really interested in. And there's not a well-trained, dissociation-informed therapist that should be doing that. That is not supposed to happen until stage two work. And even then, I, um, a group of us did a survey of experts, uh, DID experts from around the world. Even in that trauma processing stage, the experts did not recommend processing trauma memories a majority of the sessions. It wasn't one of the top 10 recommended interventions. And that's because these memories are so difficult to deal with. There's so much shame and terror and, uh, and all kinds of feelings get stirred up and conflict sometimes amongst these uh, different states. So anyway, uh, that's stage two. Stage three is working on um, stabilization, integration in the outer world, like how to have healthy relationships, uh, talking with the person about where they want to go with their career. Not everybody who comes in is sounds like they're as stable in a career as Lee sounds like she is. And so it's kind of real-world concerns, not so much needing to focus anymore on the internal world because that's functioning well. And then for some people, um, they integrate all their personalities in that last stage or actually across the stages of treatment. Lee, I was saying before that, you know, you and I have been talking both on and off the air for an hour, and I just feel like I'm talking to anybody I might talk to. I have actually an advantage over maybe a lot of people who talk to you, which is I I know from the get-go that uh, you're somewhere on that DID spectrum. And it must be very difficult. Well, is it difficult for people to know you and for you to be known by people if they don't know that? In other words, I'm assuming this isn't something that you just sort of share in the break room while people are eating pizza. Um, And so ultimately, it must be a little bit of a struggle to feel fully understood if people don't know that about you. Well, I think one of the problems is that um, once people start to understand that this is what's going on with them, 
you you because I would never um, switch or be hijacked at work. There wouldn't be a situation where I was feeling like there was a predator or um, so those situations for me are much less likely to be apparent. But I did start to tell my son about this as I began writing about the book and just sort of what I think is sort of kind of a funny thing. He had said to me, well, well, mom, I I've never seen you be anybody but you. And I thought, well, you know what? You're you're not in a position where you would ever be uh, threatening me. There wouldn't be a reason for me to be need a protector or need for Emily to need to come out and worry you more because I'm his mom and I'm going to make sure that I'm I'm protecting him in those circumstances. However, there were days when, and I think this is because Rebecca is a teenager and um, she's super playful when she's not being a protector and she's really funny. You know, when the new Star Wars movie came out, we skipped school. And, you know, that might have been me, but I'm pretty sure that was some Rebecca going on there, too. You know, because she's, I mean, she's young and she's playful and she has these wonderful personalities. So he, he now understands that it's, it's all me, but there really wouldn't be a reason for me to switch or be hijacked in front of him or in his presence. Perhaps when I was married, I had... My spouse was had some problems with addiction. He became not physically abusive, but, you know, there were some explosive situations where, you know, I'd kind of scoop Jake up and make sure that we were in the bedroom and we were watching a movie and eating some ice cream. And when mm-hmm. I put him to bed, if there was something that became more explosive than that, he didn't see it. Um, that was just something in my coping mechanism with my with my ex-husband. All right. We're going to take uh, one more break here. We're going to come back with these two very interesting guests and tell you even more. We're going to talk a little bit about how these things do wind up getting depicted in popular culture uh, in a way that bears no resemblance to the conversation we're having right now. So we'll be back. Kind of screwed up blend, split personality, two sides to fight and argue all night over coffee or tea. Well, that's okay, I wouldn't mind two shank or even three, and that's no joke. But with a four-way split, the pocket money's hit, and all of me is broke. I got four heads. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and May Kion Wolf, with help from our intern Hazel Cologne. The part of Bill Curry was played by Sally Field. Check out all of our past shows on WNPR.org slash Colin or on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. And now, back to Colin. We're back. We're back with Lee Waters, a healthcare worker for 25 years, a parent and an aspiring writer working on an autobiography about her life with dissociative identity disorder, DID. Uh, Also joining us, Bethany Brand, professor of psychology at Towson University uh, and a practicing clinical psychologist specializing in trauma and dissociative disorders. Uh, I mean, I I do feel as though if you know anything about this disorder, uh, if it is a disorder, uh, we were talking before the show about whether it's a disorder or an, a- or an adaptation. First of all, there's a better chance than you think that you that you know somebody who has this, uh, but has never talked to you about it. Uh, and for all the reasons we were talking about just uh, before the break, 
So if you know anything about it, if you have exposure to it, it might be through the movies, through stories like Jekyll and Hyde or the movie Sybil, the Sally Field movie we mentioned before. I mean, there's just a raft of them. There's As we started looking at that, there's just so many of them. Um, there is one that's sort of out in movie theaters right now. It didn't have uh, a very long run, at least in first-run theaters around here. I think both of our guests are probably uh, grateful for that. It's called Split, uh, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, both uh, of our guests are familiar with it. Let's hear a tiny little clip. The patient here is visiting his psychiatrist. He is uh, Barry. Uh, she confronts him with her hunch that she is witnessing a personality named Dennis for the first time. Barry denies it. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. It doesn't seem like Barry. Barry is an extroverted leader. Yes, I am. I'm going to take a professional guess based on the description of all 23 identities that live in Kevin's body that I've gotten from Barry. I think I'm talking to Dennis. I'm encouraged we can finally meet. And I've guessed this because you've adjusted the chocolate dish twice since you came in here, and I understand you have OCD. <laughs> no, I see. Now I see. That's clever. That's clever. But I'm, I'm, I'm not Dennis. And you and Patricia have been banned from the light for quite a while now, primarily, shall we say, because of your beliefs. Patricia and Dennis are very unstable. I'm not Dennis. Have you both taken charge now? Please believe me. I'm Barry. All right. So that's from Split. Um, so I, I'm going to start uh, with you, Bethany Brand. This uh, movie, which in which obviously, you know, as, as anybody can guess without even knowing uh, for sure, uh, there are violent personalities. There are these uh, sudden changes into somebody uh, really, really dangerous. This is kind of the boilerplate movie depiction of dissociative identity disorder. And my understanding is that you actually had a chance to talk with the director and maybe see if maybe this could be fine-tuned a little bit. How did that go? Um, M. Night Shyamalan reached out to me. His staff had found me on the internet, and he asked if I would consult with him and teach him about DID. So he came down to Baltimore, and we had a three-hour lunch, and it, it, this is a very engrossing topic. He was fascinated. He'd actually done a lot of reading about it. I agreed to meet with him at first, hoping that I could educate him enough about the disorder that he would portray it with some degree of accuracy and compassion. He then invited me up to his estate in, uh, outside of Philadelphia, and I had a lovely evening with him and his family, and we talked much more about DID. I was trying to beseech him, and ultimately I talked to the, uh, a number of different heads at Universal about would they do some, some kind of education about DID? You know, in the credits afterward, could they put some links to how to find out more about it, how to get help? Could they donate, you know, 1% of the profits towards research for dissociative disorders or training of therapists since it's such an under, it's a disorder that is so misunderstood even by the mental health field. And none of that materialized, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, it's, it's disappointing. I, in my opinion, Universal and M. Night Shyamalan have made millions. Uh, I understood from the first two weekends that they made $100 million mm. off of this movie around the world. And frankly, people end up with DID because they were tremendously exploited as children. And it bothers me to see so many studios. Of course, it's an interesting disorder. 
All right, so be like these beer companies and give back some money to help the people that you might be exploiting to make your millions. Yeah, I mean, one thing we know about people with mental illness is that they are much more likely to be victimized uh, than to be victimizers. Um, and so, well, well, Lee, I mean, I, I don't know. We've only known each other for about an hour, but I really don't really think that somebody named Marlene is going to come out and stab me with an ice pick. And you know, the, this not is, today. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. This isn't really the way that, yeah. that, that this works for you. But so you actually went and saw Split, something which, if I had been your friend at that moment, I would have actively discouraged you from doing. But anyway, you. you what was your reaction? Well, and you know, in doing research for my book, um, I felt it was you know my responsibility. And part of learning about myself in this was actually going back and looking at movies like Sybil, and really as far back as like the Three Faces of Eve and mm-hmm. Bates Motel, and um, there was a movie on HBO called Nightingale with David Ayelamo. I may be pronouncing that wrong. And I just thought, what you know, one's getting this right, and. Mm-hmm. I didn't see my obviously didn't see myself in any of these murderous characters. And so it was a disappointment, but it was something that I felt was important because it just propels me forward in in my desire to make um, people. That's why I'm here today. I really want people to understand that this is very misunderstood. I hope that people listen to the show with an open mind and an open heart and knowing that you know there are, there are lots of people out here you'll never you would never know and there there is probably a spectrum of which i'm maybe on the higher functioning spectrum um but that it, it i didn't have difficulty watching the movie a because i went with somebody um two people that were very supportive of me and knew what was going on and i knew going in that it wasn't going to be for me it was a farce of of what I know to be true, so I didn't find it to be triggering at all. I just I just fairly just pissed me off to be honest with you, <laughs> you know. And it did. It was um, three weeks in a row number one in the box office, you know, above like La La Land, which mm. was you know, who doesn't want to go see a musical, right? Um, so you know, there is a fascination. I I would like for there to be a fascination in um, how we come out on the other side, being healed and whole and you know, with families and loving and caring for other people and wanting to help them um, be more educated and feel heard by, ultimately by society, but, you know, even by their therapist, um, which I find that many, many um, therapists and the research that I've done um, say, you know, it's all in your head. Well, you know, it is. Let's yes, be honest. It it's all in your head, <laughs> you know, until it's not, you know, until it's, it's uh, you know, you're hijacked or something else happens. But you're never hijacked, you know, with blood on your hands going, you know, oh, who did I murder? Um, you're, you're hijacked and you go to the refrigerator and you're like, who ate the chocolate cream pie? <laughs> it's That's much more um, um, what it's like, you know, so which explains some of the weight gain, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, Bethany, uh, obviously, as um, as Lee is suggesting, there's a continuum. She's probably a little bit on the high functioning end of the continuum. <laughs> she has a you know a job and a son and uh, all this kind of stuff. But I, I feel as though one of the things that filmmakers like is the dramatic switch from one personality to another, right? This kind of sharp break from one personality to another, that that's very exciting to do. I will now wreck a movie for everybody. At the end of Primal Fear, there's a moment where Ed Norton just becomes like a completely different person from whom you've seen uh, the entire movie. And 
that, you know, talking to Lee, it feels more like uh, the way that she describes it, it's more like automatic transmission. It's kind of like you've got some gears, you know, I'm driving my car. I'm not really keenly aware, aware of exactly how the gears are working, but sometimes my car is in different gears and they kind of shift around uh, pretty smoothly. And uh, so I don't know, Bethany, as you look at maybe the breadth of uh, this spectrum, I mean, it, it, uh, is that one of the things that the filmmakers are distorting, this idea of this really kind of sharp, emergent break from altar to altar? Absolutely. So your metaphor is a beautiful one. That is what it's like. It's like shifting gears in a car. Generally speaking, shifting states is like that. Just like shifting moods for any of us is kind of a gradual process. Although, you know, if we get horrible news about the death of somebody, you know, we can be triggered into a different mood state. And, and Lee has said that also very well. If she feels triggered and threatened, she may shift even in a public place, but that's just not typically the norm. If DID looked like it does in Sybil or in Split, there wouldn't be six to 12 years of misdiagnosis. <laughs> Clinicians are smart people. They're well-trained. They've got graduate degrees. They wouldn't be missing those kind of shifts. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a great way to put it. Um, first of all, I want to just uh, remind everybody that we've been talking to Lee Waters, a healthcare worker uh, who is working on a book about her own experiences with dissociative identity disorder. We're talking to, also to Bethany Brand, a professor of psychology at Towson University, uh, a practicing clinical psychologist who specializes uh, in trauma and dissociative disorders. So, you know, Lee, I'm going to um, give you the last word here. And you know, I read uh, there's a uh, really interesting website called The Mighty, which uh, is sort of essays by people who have all kinds of different experiences with either, you know, mental uh, issues or, or physical issues. And so one person wrote this essay. He has dissociative identity disorder. He sort of it was sort of sort of the what I wish everybody knew about me essay. Is there something that you wish I mean, obviously, you wish that people wouldn't make movies like Split. Mm -hmm. They make it seem like this is really scary. But are, are there sort of things that are maybe a, a little less obvious, you know, even for the people who, who deal with you, whether it's your son, your coworkers, anybody else in your life, that you wish that they could understand? My wish is that um, people would look at this as a miracle, and that's what I think it is. I think it is the, a miracle of the brain to be able to take a situation that is excruciating and unbearable and to be able to um, find a way to keep a person or a body safe enough with that information tucked in a box. And Hope and I kind of done this together where, you know, I, I took the trauma, we, we put it in a box, we wrapped it up with a scarf, and we put it somewhere safe. And at some point we may open it, and at some point we may not. But I think the fact that I... I managed to get through this with the help of what happened to me in my brain is a, an absolute miracle. The fact that in fourth grade, I could get up and eat my Cheerios and go to school and find friends and go to college and get a degree and find good work is a miracle. And I wish people would think about it more in, in that way, that it is, it's, it's a beautiful thing and I feel Every day, grateful um, for my team. Um, I wouldn't be here without them. Um, they all play a role. We link arms together, and um, we take care of each other. And um, and and I and I think that's the way it will always be with us. Um, I hope that there are other people that um, find if they hear something in this 
that um, rings true to them. Like when I looked at the Mayo Clinic website and I thought, check, check, check. Mm. Believe yourself. You know you're you know you know you're a mind. You know what you're going through. Um, it's a very courageous thing for people to go out and ask for some help um, in something that is so misunderstood. And uh, I hope if this helps, if this helps anyone, I've. I've done my job here today. Let me ask you one more thing. There mm-hmm. are support groups, and you go to a support group. Um, I assume what you, you you just described of you know what what is ultimately for you a pretty successful adaptation to uh, some very very painful, incredible, incredibly painful childhood trauma that might have otherwise disabled you. you. It's a successful adaptation. I'm assuming at these support groups, though, there is a continuum. Not everybody can really experience this as a successful adaptation. There is. And um, the support groups that I'm a part of are mostly um, through um, groups on Facebook and Internet Mm. um, groups, but they are very well regulated. Um, There are people there that are not. There's trigger warnings all the time for um, so people know, you know, that there are things that they can and cannot look at. Um, I I do um, feel very blessed that I'm on you know, a part of the spectrum that I think is, uh, you know, much more high functioning. I find that the people that aren't um, suffer through, um, you know, there was recently someone who had stated she and her husband had been trying to get pregnant for a um, long time. And she found out that she was in one of her alters, went to an abortion clinic and hijacked her. And she didn't know. And it turned out to be okay. But imagine trying to um, cope with something on that magnitude. So um, I think the more that we can talk about it and get help for people that are, are struggling with it in this profound way, um, and the more that we can be open about it, um, the better off we're, we're all going to be in helping folks out. We're going to stop there, but at wnpr.org slash Colin, uh, we will p- post not only the audio for this show, but every possible link for Uh, online support and other kinds of um, help that we can find and that our terrific guests, Lee Waters and Bethany Brand, will give us. So thanks very much for listening uh, to this show today. And thanks to both of you for sharing an incredibly complicated but fascinating story. We'll be back tomorrow. 